You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and helping you make sense of media reports about the latest research into causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of mental health issues from other media sources, with the benefit of 25 years of the practice of psychiatry, along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, as well as trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues. Well, welcome back for another informative hour on mental health issues, and first up on tonight's podcast... We're going to talk about the negative consequences of marijuana use. And I know this isn't popular. I don't mind that. Um, I don't mind being part of an ever-shrinking minority of people in this country who still think smoking marijuana is a bad idea and that people shouldn't do it because there are dangers associated with it and health issues, even though many more states are legalizing it for at least medical use, if not recreational use. The health consequences are well-known, well-documented, and as recreational use becomes more out in the open and legalized in more locations, I believe we're going to see the consequences mounting. But nonetheless, let me... Stop editorializing and go over this study with you from the American College of Cardiology. Right, This is a major health association here in the United States and one that is uh, seen as a leader in information about heart health. Using marijuana raises the risk of stroke and heart failure even after accounting for demographic factors, other health conditions, and lifestyle risk factors, such as smoking cigarettes and alcohol use. Uh, This research was to be presented at the American College of Cardiology's 66th Annual Scientific Session. Coming at a time when marijuana is on track to become legal for medical or recreational use in more than half of the United States states. This study sheds new light on how the drug affects cardiovascular health. While previous marijuana research has focused mostly on pulmonary or lung and psychiatric complications, This new study is one of only a handful to investigate cardiovascular outcomes. Let me just remind you about the potential negative 
psychiatric outcomes. In vulnerable people, smoking marijuana can cause symptoms of schizophrenia. Now, like all other drugs, whether they're prescribed or not prescribed, the doctors who did this investigation said they wanted to know the effects and side effects of this drug. It's important for physicians to know these effects so that they can better educate their patients, such as those who are inquiring about the safety of marijuana or even asking for a prescription for it. The study drew data from the nationwide inpatient sample, which includes the health records of patients admitted at more than 1,000 hospitals, comprising about 20% of United States medical centers. Researchers extracted records from young and middle-aged patients, age 18 to 55 years, who were discharged from hospitals in 2009 and 2010, when marijuana use was illegal in most states. Marijuana use was diagnosed in about 1.5% or 316,000 people of the more than 20 million health records included in the analysis. Comparing cardiovascular disease rates in these patients to disease rates in patients not reporting marijuana use, researchers found marijuana use was associated with a significantly increased risk for stroke, heart failure, coronary artery disease, and sudden cardiac death. Marijuana use was also linked with a variety of factors known to increase cardiovascular risk, such as obesity, high blood pressure, smoking, and alcohol use. After researchers adjusted the analysis to account for these factors, marijuana use was independently associated with a 26% increase in the risk of stroke and a 10% increase in the risk of developing heart failure. Even when researchers corrected for known risk factors for cardiovascular disease, they still found a higher rate of both stroke and heart failure in these patients. So there is something else going on besides just obesity or diet-related cardiovascular side effects. More research will be needed to understand the pathophysiology or the underlying causes behind this effect. Research done in cell cultures shows that heart muscle cells actually have cannabis receptors relevant to something called contractility or the ability to contract or squeezing ability, suggesting that these receptors might be one mechanism through which marijuana use could affect the cardiovascular system. It is possible that other compounds could be developed to counteract that mechanism and reduce cardiovascular risk. Because the study was based on information from hospital discharge records, 
The findings certainly can't be considered reflective of the general population as a whole. And the study was also limited by the researchers' inability to account for quantity or frequency of marijuana use, purpose of use, that is, recreational or medical, or the delivery mechanism of the marijuana. Was it smoked or was it ingested, as in foods? The growing trend toward legalization of marijuana could mean that patients and doctors will become more comfortable speaking openly about marijuana use, which could allow for better data collection and further insights into the drug's effects and side effects. So really, to be fair, even though they were careful to conduct the data collection to make the results valid, it would actually be even better if you proactively studied a larger population. You took a whole bunch of people and you tracked them to see if they would develop any of these cardiovascular complications such as heart disease, stroke, what have you. And then you looked at everything else in their lifestyle and you track whether those who smoked marijuana had a higher risk of those other things happening compared to those who didn't. That's the only way to know for sure. And, uh, you know, that would, that would certainly be an interesting study. A big one would take a long time. But I still think, even though this was retrospective data collection from people in the hospital, that's still a, a remarkable finding. Uh, and people need to know, uh, despite the fact that it's becoming legal in more places, despite the fact that it's considered a healing drug for a lot of illnesses, um, it is not without its risks. Uh, those among them, stroke and heart failure. All right. Well, let's move on to another topic tonight. Let's look at the results of stress and how they differ between men and women. Uh, a study finds that stress of major life events, uh, we have no shortage of that lately, this type of stress impacts women more than men. Uh, there was a poll of 2,000 people that was done uh, over in the UK by the Physiological Society, and it found that there is a potential gender gap in stress. Women reported higher stress due to specific life events, and they looked at several different types of life events that can cause stress, from very, very severe ones, such as the death of a loved one, to serious but less severe, such as an illness, to very annoying but all not that much severe, like losing their smartphone, and then something very, very stressful going on in the news. And in the UK, that's the Brexit and all the fallout from that. Um, if this study had been done in the US, it's pretty clear that uh, they would probably have chosen the recent election and all the outcome from that. But nonetheless, uh, obviously, these are two 
societies that are quite similar. So I think that the results they obtained certainly are relevant to what we see here in the States. The study was based on research commissioned by the Physiological Society and asked over 2,000 people to rate how stressful they found key life events. And for every event, women were more stressed than men. The biggest difference was in the stress caused by the threat of terrorism and the smallest for the arrival of the first child. Now, uh, it's important to point out this study was done well before the recent horrible terrorist attack that took place uh, in the Parliament building in London. All right, looks like I have to take a commercial break right here. When we come back, we'll talk about the findings of the study and have other mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. And right now, we're talking about a study done in the UK showing that women report higher levels of stress from the same life events 
compared to men. This study builds on the very, very famous stress-related work of two psychologists. In 1967, they came up with a very well-known Holmes and Rahi scale. This is basically um, a list of all the different types of stressful life events that people can experience. And it assigns kind of a rank order or numerical value to uh, all the different types of stressors that can befall we human beings. And so depending on what someone is going through, you can come up with a, a way to quantify their level of stress. Um, <clears throat> the worst uh, possible life stressor, according to their scale, I believe, is uh, death of a child, right below that being death of a spouse, and death of a parent. But um, <clears throat> the key findings from this recent study include geographic variations. The most stressed area was Scotland, while the least stressed was the southeast of England. The east of England was notably upset by delays in their commutes, while Londoners were most sanguine about going on holiday. Um, Again, not necessarily something we can relate to, but I will comment that uh, the Scots being more stressed, uh, you may have read in the news that Scotland um, was particularly upset about the UK vote for Brexit. Uh, Scotland did not want Brexit, and is... Their leader is trying to find a way to set up another referendum to exit the UK so that they can stay in the EU and, and not be part of Brexit. So this may very well be why the Scots um, are, are under more stress. Now, age was another variable. The results of the study found that for some events, stress levels increase with age most strongly for long-term problems such as illness or imprisonment. Exceptions to this trend where age, in other words, didn't make a difference was the loss of a smartphone. Uh, you know, that fits with the added difficulties this would cause. Um, you, but you would think to a highly connected younger generation, especially in the arrival of a first child, you know, that obviously is going to be younger folks. That was rated highest by those 25 to 34, not surprisingly. And then Brexit, and again this would be analogous to the stress that we have felt about our election. That had the greatest variety of responses given. Um, oddly enough, 18 to 24 year olds had the most uh, likely to be stressed by it. You wouldn't think the young people would be that in tune with a political event like that. Those living in London and Scotland were more stressed by it than those living in Wales and much of the rest of England. Most markedly, those respondents educated to a higher degree level reported considerably greater stress from Brexit than people with uh, lesser levels of education. Uh, perhaps more educated people pay more attention to things like this in the news. Uh, perhaps uh, people who are not as well educated are 
more focused on sustaining themselves in their daily lives. Now, physiological society is using the study to raise awareness of the effect of stress on the body's function. During stress, the body prepares for action by releasing hormones into the bloodstream, such as cortisol. These hormones affect the heart as well as digestive and immune systems. Frequent and prolonged stress can cause long-term physiological problems in the body. And with women more likely to report feeling stressed than men, this could have a very real impact on their health. The modern world brings with it stresses we would not have imagined 50 years ago, such as dealing with things on social media and how we have instant information, instant feedback through our smartphones. It was striking, according to the researchers, that for every single event in the study, from money problems to Brexit, women reported greater stress levels than men. While many people are aware of the effect of stress on mental well-being, it is also important to consider the impact on the body's systems. Your brain, nervous and hormonal systems react to stress and it affects your heart, immune system and gastrointestinal system. And when stress is prolonged, these effects on the whole body can result in illnesses or increased risk of heart attack. Now, it would seem to me the take-home message here is that women need to pay more attention to their responses to stressful events and seek ways to alleviate the effect of stress in their life and on their body, either by avoiding things that are avoidable. Obviously, you can't avoid life events such as loss of a loved one, illness, and hey, sometimes you might lose your phone. But what you can do is limit your exposure to stressful events in the news. Um, you know, I've talked about that before on the podcast, and I often talk to my patients in my office about this. There are some people who are especially vulnerable to feeling extremely stressed by news of uh, very negative events that take place. And again, it's going to increase the circulation of those stress hormones. It's going to interfere with health. So I'm not advocating that you just hide from or insulate yourself completely from what's going on in the world, but simply not to immerse oneself in it. So avoid watching TV news, which repeats the same information and images over and over. Um, <clears throat> avoid going on the Internet and reading a story and following the link to the next and the next and the next and so on, or with the videos, same thing. Um, and then on social media, unsubscribe or unfollow these uh, streams or, or sites that bring you this type of information. Um, <clears throat> you can know what's going on by reading the newspaper, either in print or online. When you dump the article, that's it. Stop there. You, you know what happened. You know the facts, uh, but you're not 
unnecessarily exposing yourself to an excessive amount of stress. And then there's also actively doing things that we know alleviate the effects of stress on the body, such as exercise, very, very important. Uh, yoga and mindfulness meditation, also things that have been proven to be very effective at reducing the effects of stress on the body and the mind alike. <clears throat> well, let's move on to what you can eat to alleviate stress. Some veggies each day keeps the stress blues away. This according to a study from the University of Sydney. It was published in the British Medical Journal Open. It was a longitudinal study, meaning long-term, of more than 60,000 Australians aged 45 years and above. They measured participants' fruit and vegetable consumption, lifestyle factors, and their psychological distress at two time points, during 2006 to 2008, and then again in 2010. Psychological distress was measured using the Kessler Psychological Distress Scale, which is a 10-item questionnaire measuring general anxiety and depression. Usual fruit and vegetable, sorry, vegetable consumption was assessed using short validated questions. So let's go over some of the key findings. People who ate three to four daily servings of vegetables had a 12% lower risk of stress than those who ate zero to one servings daily. People who ate five to seven daily servings of fruits and vegetables had a 14% lower risk of stress than those who ate zero to four servings a day. Women who ate three to four daily servings of vegetables had an 18% lower risk of stress than women who ate zero to one servings daily. That's very interesting in light of the study we previously talked about, right? The, uh, the UK study that looked at life stressors found that women were more vulnerable to the effects of stress than men. And in this study, they didn't break down uh, men's results, but if you just look at the men plus women, uh, compared to men plus women, just women alone had a greater reduction in stress from eating the same amounts of uh, servings of fruits and vegetables. Yeah, and, and here, even, even women who ate only two daily servings of fruit had a 16% lower risk of stress than women who ate zero to one servings daily. And that's better than the entire study population who had five to seven servings. And what about when women had five to seven servings? Well, that was the greatest reduction in stress. Five to seven servings a day of fruit and vegetables, 23% lower risk of stress than women who ate zero to one. Very interesting. All right, so like your grandmother said, eat your vegetables. At the start of the study, characteristics associated with higher stress included being female, 
like the UK study, younger, having lower education and income, again like the UK study, being overweight and obese, being a current smoker, and being physically inactive. Well, all that makes sense. We know that smoking, obesity, and inactivity are all risk factors for being more stressed. All right, we have to take another commercial break here. When we come back, more of the results of this study and other mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. 
Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Right now, giving you good information on how to eat well to avoid stress. Eat your vegetables and fruits. Now, uh, continuing with our discussion of this study from Australia, fruit consumption alone had no significant association with a lower incidence of stress. To me, that is fairly an obvious indication that the phytols and other healthful compounds found in vegetables are very important for stress reduction. There was no significant association between higher levels of fruit and vegetable intake that is greater than seven daily servings and a lower incidence of stress. Right? So what that means is it's it's not a case of if some is good, more is better. Uh, they saw the healthful effects of the servings of fruits and vegetables up to seven per day, but uh, going beyond that won't bring about any further benefit. And the study shows overall that moderate daily fruit and vegetable consumption is associated with lower rates of psychological stress. It also reveals that moderate daily vegetable intake alone is linked to a lower incidence of psychological stress. Moderate fruit intake alone appears to confer no significant benefit on people's psychological stress. The new findings are consistent with numerous cross-sectional and longitudinal studies showing that fruit and vegetables together and separately are linked with a lower risk of depression and higher levels of well-being assessed by several measures of mental health. And as we were discussing before the break, they found that fruit and vegetables were more protective for women than men, suggesting that women may benefit more from having this in their diet, or uh, they're going to see greater reduction in stress from having that in their diet than men are. does not mean that men should not add these things to their diet. It just means that women's stress is going to come down to a greater degree. Now, they talked about possibly doing further studies to look at whether there's a threshold between medium and higher levels of fruit and vegetable intake and reduction in stress. Um, but still, if you're talking about seven servings a day, I mean, that's pretty much in line with the dietary guidelines for good cardiovascular health anyway. And you know, this is what I've always preached to you and what so many studies have found. That is, what's good for your cardiovascular health as far as diet is also good for your brain as far as help with stress and depression and those types of issues. So again, seven servings a day, fruit and vegetables combined will keep your stress level much lower, especially if you're a woman. 
very good news. All right, now let's turn our attention to a very different type of mental health issue. Those of you who have sons or brothers or maybe even grandsons or maybe even husbands who are obsessed with playing video games, and some of those video games may be violent ones, the active shooter games, this study would be of interest to you. Uh, there have often been charges leveled against the publishers of these games that they promote aggression or perhaps lack of empathy as was looked at in this study in the people who play them. And the results of this study are probably going to be surprising because what the researchers found was that violent video games were not found to affect empathy. The study found no link between long-term playing of violent video games and changes in empathetic neural responses. The link between playing violent video games and antisocial behavior such as increased aggression and decreased empathy is hotly debated. Researchers in Germany used functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI on long-term players of violent video games and found that they had the same neural response to emotionally provocative images as non-gamers. This finding suggests that empathy is not blunted by playing such games long term. Now just to remind you what fMRI is, uh, a, a normal MRI scanner such as you might have been in yourself uh, to have some imaging done to investigate an illness or injury is just looking at a static picture of the structure inside your body, whereas functional MRI of the brain tells researchers what areas of the brain are active in real time while someone is having a certain thought or performing a certain task. So you can really get a very clear picture of what's going on with someone's mind while they're thinking or doing or saying something and they're in the scanner. So the link between violent media such as violent movies and video games and real-life aggression and violence has been discussed and analyzed ever since these types of media have existed. Some of this has taken the form of tabloid hysteria, but this question has also been addressed by numerous scientific studies. Previous studies have shown that people who play violent video games can be desensitized towards emotional stimuli such as violence and show decreased empathy and increased aggression. However, the overwhelming majority of these studies investigated only the short-term effects 
of playing violent video games, where participants played the games immediately before or even during the experiment. There have been very few studies that have examined the long-term effects of playing violent video games. And this is the difference the, between the way this study was done and a lot of the previous research on the effect of people uh, from violent video games. In other words, the way they did this study, as we'll get into the details in just a moment, they did not assess them right then and there when they're playing in the game or right afterwards because, you know, surely at that point you're going to have the short-term activation and agitation and aggression that comes from just having played the game. So this study, which was published in the journal Frontiers in Psychology, researchers instead investigated the long-term effects of playing violent video games, not the acute effects. The research question arises first from the fact that the popularity and the quality of the video games, <clears throat> uh, I think that refers to the graphics, uh, the, the images, and the um, you know, the real-looking nature of them, including all the violence and gore, all of that is increasing. And second, there are more and more patients who are having problematic and compulsive video game consumption. Um, that's another controversy altogether, uh, the whole thing about video game addiction, internet addiction, uh, this is very controversial. Not all authorities agree that there really is such a thing. The participants in the study were all male. As playing violent video games and aggressive behavior are more prevalent in men. All the gamers had played first-person shooter video games, such as Call of Duty or Counter-Strike, at least two hours daily for the previous four years although the average gaming participant played for an average of four hours daily. The gamers were compared with control subjects who had no experience with violent video games and did not play video games regularly. To avoid the short-term effects of playing violent video games, the gamers refrained from playing for a minimum of three hours before the experiment started although the majority refrained for much longer than this. But at least three hours, you're definitely going to come down from all the excitement and agitation of playing. This study was geared toward finding the long-term effects of playing such games. To evaluate their capacity for empathy and aggression, the participants answered psychological questionnaires. Then, while being scanned in an MRI machine, the participants were shown a series of images designed to provoke an emotional and empathetic response. As the images appeared, they were asked to imagine how they would feel in the depicted situations. Using the MRI scanner, the researchers measured the activation 
of specific brain regions to compare the neural response of gamers and non-gamers. The psychological questionnaire revealed no differences in measures of aggression and empathy between gamers and non-gamers. And that was backed up by the fMRI data, which demonstrated that both gamers and non-gamers had similar neural responses to the emotionally provocative images. The results surprised the researchers because it was contrary to their initial hypothesis and suggests that any negative effects of violent video games on perception or behavior may be short-lived. And they hope this will encourage further research on this issue. All right, we'll take another commercial break here, and we'll be back with more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Next up on Psychiatry Today, daily consumption of tea protects the elderly from cognitive decline. Well, that's certainly very promising and interesting research finding. But there's a caveat, as I'll explain. But first, let's talk about this tea study. Tea drinking reduces the risk of cognitive impairment in older persons by 50% and as much as 86% for those who are genetically at risk of Alzheimer's. This comes to us from the National University of Singapore. Singapore. 
A cup of tea a day can keep dementia away, and this is especially so for those who are genetically predisposed to the debilitating disease. A longitudinal study involving 957 Chinese seniors aged 55 years or older has found that regular consumption of tea lowers the risk of cognitive decline in the elderly by 50%, while carriers of the gene apolipoprotein E4, who are genetically at increased risk of developing Alzheimer's disease, may experience a reduction in cognitive impairment risk by as much as 86%. The research team also discovered that the neuroprotective role of tea consumption on cognitive function is not limited to a particular type of tea. So long as the tea is brewed from tea leaves, such as green, black, or oolong tea. While the study was conducted on Chinese elderly, the results could apply to other races as well. The findings have important implications for dementia prevention. Despite high-quality drug trials, effective pharmacological therapy for neurocognitive disorders such as dementia remains elusive, and current prevention strategies are far from satisfactory. Tea is one of the most widely consumed beverages in the world. The data from this study suggests that a simple and inexpensive lifestyle measure, such as daily tea drinking, can reduce a person's risk of developing neurocognitive disorders in late life. Based on current knowledge, this long-term benefit of tea consumption is due to the bioactive compounds in tea leaves, such as catechins, theoflavins, theorubigans, and L-theanine. Remember L-theanine for a little later. These compounds exhibit anti-inflammatory and antioxidant potential and other bioactive properties that may protect the brain from vascular damage and neurodegeneration. Our understanding of the detailed biological mechanisms is still very limited, so we do need more research to find out definitive answers. In this study, tea consumption information were collected from the participants who are community living elderly, and the data was collected from 2003 to 2005. At regular intervals of two years, these seniors were assessed on their cognitive function using standardized tools, and actually starting from 2003 to 2005, they were studied up until 2010, every two years. Information on lifestyles, medical conditions, physical and social activities, all of which would affect the risk of dementia, were also collected. Those potential confounding factors were carefully controlled 
in statistical models to ensure that the findings were robust and only attributable to the consumption of tea. The research team published their findings in the scientific journal, the Journal of Nutrition, Health and Aging, in December of 2016. <clears throat> the research team are planning to embark on further studies to better understand the impact of Asian diet in general on cognitive health in aging. They are also keen to investigate the effects of the bioactive compounds in tea and test them more rigorously through the assessment of their biological markers and by conducting randomized controlled trials or studies that assign participants into experimental groups or control groups randomly to eliminate biased results. Well, I for one look forward to those follow-up more detailed, more controlled studies. And the question I had when I first read about this is, as the lead author of the study correctly pointed out, tea is one of the most widely consumed beverages in the world. And that being the case, why is it that we still have an ever-growing incidence of dementia? Well, you know, so I think there are a lot more answers that we need from this. However, it is very well known that tea has some very healthful bioactive compounds in it, and uh, certainly, regardless of to what extent it helps neurocognitive health, uh, certainly a lot of benefits from drinking it. Now for the caveat. There was um, another article that I found um, that has to do with the effects of caffeine and L-theanine. Okay, L-theanine is one of the antioxidant compounds found in tea. And I just happened to come across this other study, um, the Journal of Psychopharmacology. Uh, this is from 2015. And they're saying that evidence suggests the interactive effects of the T components, caffeine and L-theanine, uh, have on behavior and also on the impact of cerebral blood flow. So what they did was they did a placebo-controlled, double-blind trial looking at the effects of caffeine versus L-theanine on cerebral blood flow and also ratings related to mood and cognitive function. And it was a small study, just 12 habitual tea drinkers and 12 non-habitual tea drinkers. And they gave them each 75 milligrams of caffeine, 50 milligrams of L-theanine, um, or the combination, or just placebo. And they then looked at the results. So what they found was caffeine improves performance on attention tasks, and it also improved mood ratings. This is not a surprise at all. 
Caffeine is a stimulant. It's going to improve mood. It's going to make you more focused. People with ADHD can tell you that if they don't have their Ritalin or Adderall, they're going to be drinking more caffeine to try to make up for that. So we know it increases attention. And we also know that it has a mood-elevating effect. Interestingly, when these researchers found that uh, when you combine the caffeine with the L-theanine, these effects were attenuated. They did not see improvement in mood, and they did not see the improvement in cognitive function. So combining the L-theanine with the caffeine at levels and at ratios equivalent to one or two cups of tea eliminated the behavioral effects of caffeine. And, you know, also uh, they documented a lack of these benefits from L-theanine in isolation by itself. So really, I think that lends uh, a note of caution to the newer study about tea consumption. Uh, there's clearly more to this than meets the eye. Um, so, you know, there's no necessarily easy take-home message to come out of this. Um, I basically would say it's probably overstating the case to claim that tea can prevent dementia even in people who are genetically predisposed to it. Uh, they need to do more information to justify that conclusion. And <clears throat> as to the chemical interaction between caffeine and L-theanine and the L-theanine interfering with the cognitive and mood benefits of caffeine, you know, that, that does come as a surprise. But regardless, great, go ahead and drink tea, uh, very healthful compounds in it. And for that matter, go ahead and drink coffee too. Coffee gets a bad rap. Oh, it's bad for you. It keeps you up, raises your blood pressure, this, that, and the other thing. All of that proven to be false. Uh, while tea gets all the positive publicity about healthy uh, mental effects and mood-enhancing effects and healthy antioxidants, guess what? Coffee also improves mood. There are studies that have been found that uh, three and four cups a day decreases rates of depression and suicide. And uh, coffee also, while it isn't talked about as much, has a number of healthy antioxidants in it. It's all a question of moderation. If you have coffee or tea in excess, uh, there can be problems from it. And <clears throat> I highly recommend that people with very severe anxiety disorders keep to moderate caffeine consumption because those folks could be vulnerable to too much caffeine aggravating their anxiety. And I also recommend cutting off your caffeine after 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon to avoid the possibility that it would interfere with your sleep or disrupt the quality of your sleep. All right, with that, we're going to wrap up tonight's podcast. Thanks so much for listening. I enjoyed bringing you this information. Hopefully you found it interesting and informative. And I hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week till the next time we get together. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening.